Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. I something I just want to share real quick is that um, I, I never want us to get to a place where as a church family or as people, we feel like we've arrived somewhere and, and, and then try to maintain that. Um, because what happens is, is you can't maintain something, so then what you'll do is you'll try to go back and recreate what was rather than actually stepping into what is. And so well, I feel like for us as, as leadership of the church, but we're all leaders, honestly. Like it, it, It's not just a word for me or for the worship team or for everyone else. I mean, it certainly is for me, but not just for me. I feel like the Lord's asking us in this season, what, are, what will you give up to make room for more of me? What, what is it that, that I can take from you that you'll give me so that you can have more of me? Because the truth of the matter is, like, if we want more of him, like, there has to be something in our lives we're willing to give to get more of him. And I, and I really feel that strongly, just for our church family, but for his bride, I think everywhere, he's asking, like, like, what is it that you're willing to give up to make room for more of me? Like, we can scream and sing, there's nothing we want more, but the truth of the matter is, is our lives live proof, whether that's truth coming from our mouth or just words on a Sunday morning. And, and I don't say that in a condemning way. Like, I say that in, t- in like an invitational way of like, what has he ever asked you to give up that what you've received in return wasn't better? Like, think about when you gave him your worst. It says he took, though your, though your, your robe was as scarlet, he's, he's made it white as snow. Like, he took the worst and gave you his best. Like, that's all he's ever done. And so it's not a scary thing. Like, it, it should be an exciting thing of like, God... If our focus is what we're giving up versus what he's promised to give, maybe our perspective's gotten a little skewed. If we're genuinely more grieved about the thing he's asking us to give up than excited about what we are going to receive, we've probably lost sight of the value of what he's promised. And so I just want to challenge us, just as a church family, like, you know, what is, ask, get alone. You probably already know as I'm talking, you know, like as I'm saying this, there's probably something that maybe he puts his finger on, or maybe he's already been doing that. I promise if you would just make room for more of him, like you would never look back and regret the thing that you gave up to receive more of him. You'll, you'll never, there'll be days maybe where you're tempted, like the children of Israel, you know, they leave Egypt and they get out of Egypt and they're just, they're tempted to like literally look back and be like, but it was so good in Egypt, you know, for a second. But the only reason they could do that is because they'd taken their eyes off of what was promised to them that was in front of them. As long as they were focused on the promised land, Egypt had no voice. The second they take their eyes off of what's promised, all of a sudden Egypt looks attractive again. And so I, I just, I want to, I want to encourage us into that. Like if we really want the fire of God to burn, like you put a log on and it burns, but eventually you've got to put another log on. You can't live in the fire of that one log that you sacrificed years ago. Like it's a continual thing of yielding to more of him, yielding more of ourselves for more of him. Continual. And it will be for the rest of your life. But I do feel like there are seasons that you walk into. Like It's not like, oh, this is a word for now and then not for later. But I do feel like there are times in our lives where God like specifically challenges us. Like in this season, would, what, would you seek me? and ask me what it is that you can make room for. You know, the, the, the widow with the oil, not the one that he was talking about, the other one, he told her, he said, um, the prophet said, go and get as, go get as many jars as you can and not just a few. And so she goes and rounds up all the jars she could, and God pours out oil until the, every jar was full. She determined how much she received from the Lord by the room that she prepared for him to pour himself out. 
It wasn't, it, God didn't say, I'm going to give you 26 liters of oil, so go get 26 liters worth of buckets. He said, I'm going to pour myself out. Would you make room to contain it? And he poured out to the point that he filled every bit of space that she made to receive what he had. I promise you, he's still that way. Like, he's so willing to pour himself into our lives, but he'll only pour himself out to the extent that we've made room to receive. Because yeah, he's extravagant, but not wasteful. All right, so um, turn your Bibles real quick to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, we started talking about David a little bit last week, and that felt right, and there was something in there I felt like I really wanted to, to, to get to this week um, that I didn't get to last week. And I was, I was thinking about the life of David. You know, we talked with him last week about, you know, what happened with him and Goliath, and, and, and we touched on some things from that. But I want to talk a little bit about what happened after Goliath. Because, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, is that there's a lot of times in our lives where we, we face these big battles and we, we have these victories. And, and that's amazing. And, and in that moment, it, you know, we see the Lord and we're excited about what God has done. And we feel like we could charge hell with a squirt gun. But not long after that, we face something else in our lives. Like, you, you, you just don't coast. Like, you don't, the, the next day, like, like, his mercies are new, and so is, like, everything that you face in life. This is why you need new mercy, and it's why every single day you have to daily deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. It's because every day is a new day. And yesterday's victory can encourage you on into the battle of today, but it doesn't guarantee anything apart from your faithfulness. It, it's, it, it's not, you can't coast on that. Like, you, you don't walk up to the next battle, and because you killed Goliath yesterday, the enemy cuts his own head off. Like, it doesn't work that way. And so, so, um, so, so David fights Goliath, he kills Goliath, and it says that, you know, he, he held up the head of the, of the Philistine giant, and it emboldened the army of Israel, and they pursued the Philistines where they were, and overtook them and slew them. And I think there's a, there's a principle in that, of like, the battle that you face is not just for you. The battle that you face is so that you can look to other people and say, see, they're, it's not invincible, the giant can be killed. And when you do that, people see the victory that God gave you, and it encourages them to go after the giants in their own life. And so he does that, right? And, and all of a sudden, the people start to sing praises about David. And they sing this song as David's coming back into town at one point after battle. And they say, David has slain. Slain. David has slain. His ten thousands and Saul his thousands. And the song reaches the ears of Saul. And Saul becomes enraged. He becomes jealous. And he now wants to kill David. Like literally their relationship goes from him loving David. And David being someone that God uses to bring comfort and peace into Saul's life. And it says in the chapter before the chapter about Goliath, it says that when they were looking for a skilled musician to come and play to soothe him from an evil spirit that was attacking him, it said that, that they found David and they brought him into the house. And when he would play, it said that, that, that the spirit would leave and that Saul would have peace. And isn't it crazy that all it took was people praising David more than they praised Saul for him to go from loving David to wanting to kill him? It shouldn't surprise us, though, right? Remember, because we talked a while ago about in James where it says where there is bitter jealousy, there is every evil thing. Like, jealousy is not like a little deal. It's not like a cute little pet. 
that you just kind of keep in the corner, you know, and it's like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of jealous, but no, listen, it says where you see envy and bitter jealousy, you will find every evil thing. Why? Because there is no end to what jealousy will provoke you to if it's not dealt with. And you think about Saul. Why is he so destroyed? He, he's the king. Like, literally, he's on the throne. He has the highest position in the land. People go at his word. David goes at his word. David serves him. Yet he's jealous of a shepherd boy that is serving him because the people dared to praise David at the expense of praising Saul. And Saul can't stand that. You know why? If you open, if you open your Bibles, you'll see in, in 1 Samuel 15, um, oh, I'm going to read it, verse 8, but, but the, the context of this is that, that the prophet Samuel has come to Saul, and he says, Saul, I need you to take oxen, I need you to go, I need you to, to build an altar, and I need you to wait there for me seven days until I come, and when I come, you're going to make sacrifice, and then you can go and make war against the Philistines. And remember, Saul does all the hard part. Like, literally, he gets the sacrifice transported to the place. He builds the altar out of stone. He gets all the people to be in the place they're supposed to be at, and he waits there for seven. He does all of the hard part of what he's asked, but then, all of a sudden, he decides it's time to make sacrifice before Samuel comes, and here's why. Now, he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. It's like, you did everything right. You did all the hard part. You, you took the sacrifice to the mountain. You constructed the altar. You got the people there. You waited seven days. But you couldn't wait that last hour And the reason why is because he says when he saw the people scattering. Saul never believed that he was who God said that he was. And as a result, he was reduced to living for the praises and the approval of people. At the expense of the approval of God. Listen, if you don't settle in your heart that you are who God said that you are, you will be reduced to finding the approval and the praise from anything but God. And the problem is, is the thing that you are built by is the thing that you'll be destroyed by. And so when the praises of people go from Saul to David, Saul is destroyed. And the answer in his mind is to destroy the one who's receiving the praise. He never believed that he was who God said that he was. He never believed it. Even though he was anointed by Samuel, even though Samuel told him, God's going to change you into another person when you go up and you see the prophets and they're coming down, you'll prophesy. It says in that verse, you realize it says in that verse that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. It says as he went up the mountain to the prophets, he began to prophesy and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul and that day he was changed. Just because God has changed you, it doesn't mean that you'll live as that changed person if you don't actually believe that he's changed you into the person that's capable of doing what he's called you to do. 
Think about it. His purpose for changing Saul was so that he could be a man who could rule over the people and whose throne would be established over the house of Israel forever. That was the promise over his life when he was made king, if he would just be obedient. And then God does the hard part. God changes him. You can't change yourself. Only God can change you. But the part that's up to you is to actually believe that you really have been changed. And once you believe you've been changed, then you'll live like someone who's been changed. If you don't believe it, it won't bear fruit in your life. Saul never believed it. He never believed that he was the man that God said that he was. And so he looked to people's approval. He looked to the approval of man to tell him how he was doing and who he was. And he lived by that. And when suddenly the people began to praise another, he was destroyed. You know, a person that is confident that they are who God called them to be loves when people around them do amazing things that, that, that draw the approval of the praises of people. You, they love it. Why? Because they don't think that their praise makes them less significant. Because their significant didn't come from praise to begin with. It came from the Lord. And whether people are praising you or not. I was, I was talking to someone recently, and I said, man, there is nothing like like, it's cool when people come to you and say, hey, that was, you know, it was a good word. It really changed the way I think. Or you know, someone comes to you and says, you know, there was a message you preached a couple months ago, and I've been, I've been, I, 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 I took that, and I've, I've, I've lived that way, and I've seen the, that's amazing. I love that. I love that God would use something that I've spoke, and someone would actually take that principle and live by it, and it would change the way that they think and change the way that they live. That's amazing, but there's nothing like when you get alone, and all of a sudden, the voice of the Lord comes out of the blue, and says, I'm so proud of you. And once you've had that, like, there's nothing people could say or couldn't say that can change that. And you're not living for what people are saying, so you're not destroyed by what they're not saying. But Saul's not that way. He says it. He says, but Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me. And you didn't come, and the Philistines, and all these other things. But guess what? If the people hadn't scattered, none of the other stuff would have mattered. He would have done what he was supposed to do. Because he did everything and waited up until the point that people began to leave. And all of a sudden, he acted in response to the people's actions rather than to the word of the Lord. If you ever get to a place in your life where your actions are based on the reaction of people rather than the word of the Lord, it's a scary place to be. Get alone with him. So now turn in your, in your Bibles um, ahead a few chapters to 1 Samuel chapter 24. This is really what I wanted to, to talk about. First Samuel chapter 24. Now Saul has, at first Saul's kind of hiding. You know, he's kind of hiding his, his hatred for David. But pretty soon, like, if you don't get a hold of jealousy, jealousy will get a hold of you. Yeah. And what was hidden will soon become open and obvious. Listen to me. If you're dealing with jealousy in your life, 
Get alone with God and repent and ask him to show you what it is that you don't believe, what it is that you don't see, or what it is that you have done that's opened the door for you to have that jealousy have a voice in your life. Because it's not content being the little rattlesnake in the corner over there. It wants to kill you and destroy you. All sins like that. But jealousy, particularly, James says, where you see that, there's every evil thing because it opens the door for things that you would have never imagined in your life. And so Saul's reached that point now where it's like, it's a hidden thing in his heart to it's an open thing that everybody can see. And now he's actively trying to destroy and kill David. And here's the thing. If David's like a lot of people, David starts asking himself, what have I done wrong? I must have done something wrong because if I didn't do anything wrong, this wouldn't be happening. I must have missed God because God said this, but now this is going on. When you know that you are doing what God's called you to do, when a Saul rises up, it doesn't scare you. And it doesn't make you question your own heart. It makes you hurt for theirs. And so this is where we're at. We've reached that point. 1 Samuel chapter 24, now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. His jealousy couldn't be contained in private, and apparently it had spread to the people because now the people were actually out looking actively for David and watching for David and spying on David and figuring out what David was doing and running back and reporting to him. And so they come to him and they say, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterwards that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Father, I'm so thankful for your word today, God. I'm so thankful that, that we have this amazing written word that we can open and see you, Father, that we can see who you are and know you through knowing your word, God. I thank you that as we read and as we study, as we look into it, God, that that we don't just attain information, God, but we become transformed by what we see. And I thank you for that, God. I ask that you would anoint the words that I speak, God, that, that they would come from your heart and that they would change ours. In Jesus' name, amen. So Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself, and and that's kind of vague, but if you read it in the original language, he wasn't going to do number one. And in those days, if you were going to go in and do number two, you had a lot of stuff you had to take off so that you didn't soil it. And so Saul is pursuing David in just blind, jealous hatred, and he just happens to be in front of the cave that David, of all the caves... Of all the caves there are, 
He happens to find himself in front of the one that David is hiding farther back in the cave of at the time that he decides he needs to go in and relieve himself. And so he went into the cave, and what would happen is you would take off your robe. He probably took it off and hung it somewhere on a rock or somewhere where it would stay clean. You'd take off your weaponry, all of your, all of your weapons, all of your armor, everything would be off, and you would be probably the most vulnerable that you could be while still awake when you were in that position. And David's men come to him and they say, this is, this is it. This is the Lord. He's delivered Saul into your hands. Go kill him and take what's yours. And David sneaks out, cuts a piece of the robe off, goes back, and then it says his conscience began to bother him because he had so much as touched the robe of Saul. You think about how yielded to the Lord and to the Holy Spirit he was. That a man who's trying to kill him unjustly presents himself before him and he touches his robe and it bothers his conscience. It says that David was a man after God's own heart. One of the ways that you know you're close to the heart of God is how easily your conscience can be bothered. Because the more you become like him, the more little things that once were okay become not so little things that aren't so okay. And it's, it's that place that David was at of innocence and purity where he couldn't even stand the fact that he had touched the robe. And so he goes out to Saul. But I was reading this, it was a couple months ago, and I was, I was actually talking with Zach, and we were talking about living by prophetic words and, and the importance of the, the written word. And I think this shows us the danger of thinking that, like, the promise and the opportunity means I should act. Like, David has a promise over his life that he's going to be king, and now he has the opportunity to take the life of the man who's keeping him from the thing that was promised to him. And everybody around him looking at the situation says, A plus B has to equal C. And David does what David always does. And he doesn't let a prophetic word spoke over his life trump the written word of God that was there before he was born. Think about it. He gets anointed with a prophetic word that he's the king and he's God's anointed. Yet the next day or a few days later, he yields to the written word that says, honor your father and your mother. And he goes and serves his brothers at the request of his father because he doesn't let a prophetic word about his destiny spoken over his life keep him from submitting to the written word that was over his life before he was born. And so he has this prophetic word over his life, but he has the written word to guide him to get him to the place of where the prophetic word has declared he's going to go. Because it's not so much about getting where you need to be as it is becoming the person that you need to become so that when you are where God's called you to be, you're the person that, need, that you need to be to be in that place at the right time and be able to accomplish what it is that he anointed you for in the beginning. And I think that one of the greatest dangers that, that we face as a culture of people that want things now is that many times we think that opportunity and promise must equal action on our part. 
And so here's the thing. Like, first the enemy tries to intimidate David, right? He tries to come after him, and, and I believe it was, that was the reason the lion and the bear came, because they were trying to scare David and put a fear into his heart and try to put a principle in him that says, if someone attacks me, I just shrink back and I don't go after what I'm supposed to go after. But instead, because he's following the heart of God, it actually pushes him into a place where he begins to trust God more because he sees God deliver him from the hand of the lion and the bear. And now he gets put into the position where he hears the giant, and the giant's trying to threaten and intimidate him, and he goes and cuts the head off of the giant, and the enemy realizes, I can't intimidate and scare this kid from what God has spoke over his life, because the enemy knows the promise of God over his life. Trust me, there was a demonic realm there watching as Samuel anointed David, and they know the destiny that's been spoke over his life, just like they knew the destiny that had been spoke over Saul's life. And he did everything he could to keep Saul from walking in that destiny. And now he's trying to do everything he can to get David to not walk in that destiny. And he tries to intimidate him. He tries to scare him. He tries to use one of his champions to kill David in battle. And none of that works. And so now the next best thing that he can come up with is, well, if I can't keep him from walking in what he's called to walk in, I'll try to get him to take what is not his to take yet and to step into something before he's ready for it. And I wonder this, it says that the Spirit of God had departed from Saul. You just happen to wonder if maybe it wasn't the enemy that led Saul to that cave knowing that David was in there to present him before David and tried to get David to take something in his own hands that wasn't his to take. If it wasn't the Spirit of God leading and guiding him at that point because the anointing had left him, the Spirit had had departed from him, you just have to wonder if maybe the enemy didn't lead Saul. What are the chances of all the caves... In all that valley, that the one cave that David's in is the one cave that Saul happens to stop in front of and go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I can't make it one more cave. (laughs) You can always make it one more cave. You wonder if there wasn't something at play. And if it wasn't the enemy that led him to be standing in front of that cave at that time so that he would go in and make himself vulnerable and present David with an opportunity to take matters into his own hands rather than trusting the Lord like he always had before. Just because you're doing something doesn't mean you're trusting the Lord. In fact, the fact that you're doing something might mean that you're not trusting the Lord. Just He was trusting God as much when he went into the valley and fought Goliath as he was when he didn't go and take Saul's life. Both were acts of trust in the Lord. One was an action that led to the enemy being slain. One was an action that led to the life of the king being preserved. But both of them were active obedience on David's part. And both of them were acts of trust. Why? He's saying, listen, if God has promised me this, he doesn't need my help to make it happen. And if he has said not to touch his anointed, if it's written not to touch the anointed of God, I'm not going to let something that was prophesied over me overrule and override the written word of God that was over my life before I was born. And he trusts him. Think about this, too. You just think about what a scary position the enemy can lead you into when it's jealousy and hate that's leading you to do the things that you're doing. Here he is, he thinks that he's hunting David and he's made himself the prey. But think about the restraint shown by David. And when the Lord delivers your enemy into your hand just because you can doesn't always mean you should. All right. 
happens again. This time Saul's sleeping. He goes down into the camp. Once again, they tell him, here he is. Take his life. David says, I can't touch God's anointed. And this time, he doesn't touch his robe. He takes a spear and a jug so that he can show him, once again, I could have taken your life. And why is he doing this? It's not so that he can stand in front of him and gloat. David's heart is pure. It's so that he can go to Saul and say, listen, why are you listening to the people around you that are telling you lies about me? If I wanted to kill you, I could have. What can I do to convince you that I love you and I'm for you and I don't want to kill you and I don't want your throne? Here's the problem. Jealousy allows Saul to see in a moment and say, oh my gosh, I've been wrong, I'm so sorry. But then as soon as he gets around people that say to him, David's after you, David's trying to take your throne, David's going to take over the kingdom if you don't do something about it, he instantly goes back to hunting David and turns his back on truth. And there's nothing that David can do to keep Saul from doing that because the problem isn't David, the problem is in the heart of Saul. That person is not your problem if you're struggling with jealousy. Because no matter what happened to them, it wouldn't fix you. You guys are quiet this morning. I hope it's just because, you know, you're thinking about all the other people that should be hearing this message. Because certainly it's not for any of us. Now listen, if you don't believe that you are who God says that you are, You'll be reduced to finding your identity in something else. And it won't, it won't always necessarily be evil things. You know, there's people out there whose identity comes through their gifting, and they're only doing as well as the last time that their gift was operated through them. And so all of a sudden, if you are reduced to only doing as good as your gifting, you start trying to find ways to make room for your own gifting, or maybe help God. If, if, if you're living for people telling you that the last prophetic word you gave was amazing, you may find yourself trying to come up with prophetic words. You may find yourself saying things are prophetic when they actually aren't and you already knew about them. I'm telling you, there's no end to the depravity that jealousy will bring you to. That's why it has to get dealt with. And, and I promise you, listen, you can allow God to deal with it on, your, on, on his terms, like the way he'd like to, which is the way he dealt with David, alone on the backside of a hill when no one else is around. Or it'll get dealt with publicly, like it happened with Saul, where in front of the entire nation and in front of the entire Philistine army, he finally falls on his own sword and his life ends because he never allowed God, when he was alone, to deal with the thing in his heart. You get to choose, but there is no... I'll take option C, which is I just don't deal with this and it never gets dealt with. No, it will get dealt with. I'm, I'm begging us, if there's things that God's wanting to deal with, let him deal with them when it's you and him alone. So that it never has to get dealt with when it's in public, in front of people. Promise. He's so willing. He's so loving. He's so kind. He's so gentle. Like he has no desire to see anybody come to like a public ruin. He would always rather you come to a private crushing. 
So you think about Jesus, right? We'll bring this into the New Testament. Sometimes people tell me, you preach out of the Old Testament a lot. I, I do. I just, I think when Paul said all scripture is given for our instruction and reproval and correction, he was talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written at that point. And I love the New Testament, and I try to tie everything from old into new. But man, if you're not reading the Old Testament because you think that passed away with Jesus, I want to encourage you, like, that's not true. There's some things that didn't make it past the cross, but there's a lot of God's heart that you can see that pointed to Jesus and shows us the character and nature of God and what he desired from his people when he actually walked with them and spoke with them. Yeah. But here it is in the New Testament. We'll make it legal for anybody who, who, who doesn't think that way. Um, turn, Matthew, turn real quick to Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Are you guys awake this morning? Because I, I promise y'all are like so quiet. Either, either this word is piercing or it's bouncing off, one or the other. And I'm just going to believe that it's piercing. Uh, but y'all are quiet this morning. We need to start giving infusions of coffee when people come through the door <laughs> to the early service. The second service, they come hyped, but they probably had three cups already, you know. Um, for real. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Jesus is being tempted. I'll give the context. Never like to just cherry pick a verse and try to make it fit. Jesus is being tempted by the enemy. He comes out of the water when he gets baptized. He hears the voice of the Lord. Declare who he is. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Right? And, and so the next voice, he's led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. This is one way that you know the humanity of Jesus because it says God is, cannot be nor is he tempted but with evil. But Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And it says he was tempted in every way common to man, yet without sin. Never buy into the thing that, well, he did the things he did because he was God. No, he did the things he did because he was yielded and surrendered to the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. He had to be because God can't be tempted. So Jesus was tempted in his humanity and yet without sin. And, and, and people are like, well, so you're saying you, what is it? It has nothing to do with whether I'm saying that I have done it exactly like him. I'm saying that the standard isn't me, it's Jesus. And there is a verse in your Bible that says, and yet God is faithful, will not allow us to be tempted beyond that which we can stand, but with every temptation will provide a means of escape that we may withstand the temptation. That usually goes over just about like that. <laughs> So he brings him into the, he hears, this is my beloved son, and then he gets brought into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. The next voice that he hears is the voice of the enemy questioning him, if you are the son of God, right? And so he, he tempts him in two different ways. And then the last thing he does, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He said, all this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. So here's the thing. At the time, the authority of the earth had been handed over to Satan, but Jesus knows that the earth and the fullness thereof belongs to him. So the, the, the enemy is trying to offer Jesus something that God has already promised him. A lot of the times the things that are tempting you are actually things that God has for you. It's just trying to get you to go after it out of season or before it's time. You just think, think about like, you know, the sexual uh, um, uh, promiscuity before marriage. It's taking something that God has given and promised to people, but it's before it's time. That's all it is. A lot of perversion is just a sped up version of a promise of God that you selfishly take when you want rather than submitting to him and receiving when he wants. 
Come on, that's why you have to deny yourself, because if you're not living selfishly, there's a lot less temptation to take things that aren't before their time and do things before it's time. I promise you. You deny yourself and make life not about you and don't live selfishly, and the voice of the enemy is reduced by quite a bit because most of the things he tempts us with play on our own selfish desire rather than something that's just completely wicked and evil. So he brings Jesus to this place, and he shows him something that is promised to Jesus. And what does he say? This is what he's saying, in a sense. You know all this is yours. It's going to be yours one day. I could give it to you now. You don't have to go through the pain, the crushing, the rejection. Why do you have to go? You don't want to go through all that to get this. There's an easier way. Think about how twisted this is. It's something that is promised to Jesus, and the enemy comes and says, I can give you that, but I can give it to you now and without you having to go through everything that God wants you to go through in order to receive it. And all it requires is that you listen to me and not him. You follow the voice of the stranger, not the voice of truth. And you can have it all now without having to pay the cost, without having to be crushed and bruised and rejected and criticized. This is before Jesus' ministry starts. He's, Jesus knows what lies before him. He knew at 12 who he was. His ministry is just starting. The time of being rejected and crushed and bruised and ridiculed and spit on and tortured and ultimately killed is all in front of him. And the enemy comes before he steps into that and says, listen, there's an easier way. Just listen to me and deny him. And here's the thing. This is the scariest part. Had Jesus bowed his knee to Lucifer, he would have received all of that. But at the expense of being the spotless lamb. And with that sin, because that's what sin is, it's even for something God's promised you, it's listening to and following the voice of the stranger at the expense of the voice of the Lord. That's all sin is. And had he done that, sin would have entered into his life just like it did with the first Adam. He would have not been an eternal being. And everything that he gained would have only been his as long as he lived until he died. And that would have been the end of it and nothing would have been eternal. Oh. But Jesus was living for that day, not today. I promise you, you get an eternal perspective. That's why it says, let this mind which was in Christ be also in you. He's saying what? Have the perspective of Jesus and realize it's not worth sacrificing eternity for the sake of what you can have today. That's what Jesus would have been doing. I never saw that until I was reading that story this week. I never even saw the little hook in there of you could actually have it all. See, we sometimes look at people that have things going on, whether it's in, in life, in business, in relationship, in ministry. It doesn't matter. We look at things and we see success and we think, oh my gosh, they must be doing everything right. They, and we start judging whether people are following the voice of the Lord based on what we see with our eyes. 
or we judge that people aren't following the voice of the Lord based on what we see with our eyes. If you looked at Jesus and you saw him go through the things he had to go through, and you're looking with natural lenses and natural perspective, you'd think to yourself, there's no way he's being obedient, because if he's being obedient, why is he being treated? Why is he dealing with? Why is all this stuff happening to him? He must, there must be some sin in his life. There must be some disobedience in his life. That's a natural perspective that says A plus B must equal C. And the enemy comes to him, and it's just that twist of like, you can have it now without going through everything that you have to go through. Here's the problem. Everything that you have to go through is what prepares you for the thing that's promised to you. It's not the thing keeping you from the promise. It's the thing preparing you for the promise. I... I remember, um, I remember when we were offered, I'm going to just close with this because we're running out of time, but I remember when we were offered to join together with another church a couple years ago, and this offer was made to Patty and I, and, and we were praying through it, and you know, we always want to be open to what the Lord might have for us, you know, and so our answer was, if that's what the Lord wants, awesome, and, and, and here's the thing, is that there's words that have been spoke over me by people that are prophetic. And the doors that would have been opened through joining together with that church would have made some of those words a whole lot more easy to see how they would come to pass. And, and it would have solved our space issue that we were having. And it would have solved the issue of not having youth ministry and people leaving the church because there was no youth ministry here. And it would have solved a whole bunch of problems in the natural. And in the natural, A plus B looked like C. But... Patty and I have lived our lives based on what is God saying. And we had to hear from him. That's it's, it's why we didn't even, we didn't discuss it with the elders. We didn't discuss it with other people. I think we discussed it with maybe three other people that we really trusted. But it was this thing of like, we have to hear the Lord. And we have to know. And I believe everything that's been spoke over my life, I'll come to see it. I'll see it come to pass. But I also believe that had we just gone on a prophetic word and an opportunity must equal action, we would have stepped into something that we were never called to step into. And it would have been an absolute, unmitigated disaster. Why? Because it never ends well when we take things in our own hands and do things in our own timing. It doesn't. And so we prayed about it and prayed about it and prayed about it. And then one weekend, on a Friday night, Patty heard. On a Saturday morning, I heard. And we talked about it. And both of us knew this isn't for us. This is not what God wants at this time. And then we talked about that with everyone and let people know. Because there had been some talk, obviously, going on. I guess other people knew about it, maybe from the other church. And had talked to some people. And, and we told everybody. And it was not coincidental to us that the week after that, the church started to grow. And it's continued to grow. But not only that it's continued to grow in numbers, I feel like we've grown as leaders. Our team of leadership around us has grown. And we've just seen the Lord's hand of blessing. And yeah, we've walked through some hard things since then. We've gone through some crushing. But I promise you, on the other side of crushing is always greater authority and greater anointing. That, that, that crushing thing that you're walking through right now that you think is the thing keeping you from what God has for you is actually the thing preparing you for what God has for you. If you'll just submit to it, yield to it, and not try to find the easy way out. <laughs>
The easy way out will always be there. The enemy will always be there telling you, you don't have to go through that. I have a way you can have everything that's been promised to you without you having to go through all of that. Why would you subject yourself to that? Just think about Jesus. I mean, literally, he's standing there looking at everything that has been promised to him, and he can have it now. Except for one problem. There was this little thing called the cross that God had called him to. There was this little part about being a spotless sacrifice that would take away the sin of the world. There was this thing that God was doing where he was redeeming and restoring all that was lost in the garden. There was this ministry that would carry on forever and ever, and the government of his kingdom would continue to grow forever and for eternity. And Jesus is looking, going, why would I give up eternity for the sake of having something now? I'm not going to do that because I'm here for him, not for me. So you can offer me whatever you want. If it's not what God's called me to and it's not what God's saying, it means nothing to me. That's where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get the nerve to stand in front of a king and say, what does your fire mean to us, O king? Why? Because they're living for his approval, not for the king's, and not to get away from the fire. They're not here so that they don't get burned. They're here so that they can hear, well done, good and faithful servants. And if that leads them into a fire, so be it. And they say to him, our God will protect us, but even if he doesn't. What are they saying? They're like, look, it's not about our lives. We believe that God will spare our lives. We believe that God will prosper us. We believe that God will be who he said he would be for us. And, and we believe that means that if we go into the fire, we'll come out alive. But even if it doesn't mean that and we go in the fire and die, it's worth it because we're living for him and not for you and what you can offer us, King. And I think when, when, when we get to that place of that perspective where it's like, God, there's nothing we want more than to live for knowing that today I was obedient to what you called me to. Even if, so you make a decision, right? Like we made the decision not to join churches. And then a little while later, one of my best friends passes away. And then a little while later, a little girl gets in a car accident. And there's this crushing and breaking. And it was hard. But on the other side of that, there's an even greater belief and a firmness in our hearts of the faithfulness of God of the goodness of God and that we're walking in everything he's called us to walk in. And it's so established in us. There's nothing that could be offered that would take us off that course. And I don't say that from a prideful place. I say that from a place of there's a fear and a reverence and an awe of God on my life, on Patty's life, and on the lives of the leadership of this church that says, I don't care what we could have and I don't care what we could bypass we can't do anything but what he has spoke over us and spoken to us. And it will only be one thing that causes us to make a decision, and that will be hearing his voice. Because the only thing we want to hear in response to our decisions is his voice. Well done. I'm so proud of you. And it may not be a, a leadership thing. It, it, it may, there may be all kinds of different promises. I promise you the enemy is going to come and try to get, offer you a shortcut try to tell you that there's an easier way to get what God's promised you than by following the promiser. And that day, you just look at him. It's written. They say to David, isn't it funny that David's such a type of Jesus? They say to David, hey, look, there's a verse that says this. What does the enemy do to Jesus? Hey, look, Jesus, there's a verse that says this. And how does David respond? It's written. 
shall not touch and lay your hand on the Lord's anointed. How does Jesus respond? It's written. How do we respond? It's written. Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for this, 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 just, this fire that you're putting inside of our hearts, God, to live with the perspective of Jesus that says there's nothing more important than following and obeying the voice of the Father. That there's nothing that could be offered to us that would keep us from obedience. That there's no prophetic word that could keep us from ignoring the written word over our lives. Father, we thank you. We're so thankful, God, for the prophetic words that have been spoken. And we're so thankful for the written words that will be our teacher and our tutor, as Paul said, that will bring us to the place of walking in what's been spoke over our lives and nothing else. God, I thank you that, that you're putting your finger on things in our lives to make room for more of you. God, I ask that if there is any one of us that's dealing with anything right now, that we know that you've been talking to us about God, that we would quickly do what it is you're calling us to do, that we would do quickly what it is that you're asking us to do, that we would quickly step away, quickly give up, quickly repent, quickly turn, quickly stop, whatever it is, God, quickly start. Believing that on the other side of obedience, there's always greater intimacy with you. I just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.